Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter. Pretty good Bible studies. I am now covering Acts chapter 26, verses 12 through 32. In this section of Scripture, we're going to be examining Paul's conversion testimony to Herod Agrippa II, the Jewish king who was ruling under the jurisdiction of the Romans. Portius Festus, the Roman procurator at Caesarea, had turned Paul over to a hearing in a large auditorium with Herod Agrippa II because Portius Festus needed to send Paul to Rome because Paul had appealed to Caesar in his ongoing legal struggles with the Jews in the Sanhedrin. And in order for Festus to send Paul to Rome, he had to write a letter, an accompanying letter, explaining what charges there were against Paul. He couldn't think of anything because Paul was innocent of riot and sedition. So he figured that the Jewish king, Herod Agrippa II, who was Jewish and who'd been ruling in Jerusalem for a long time, at least six years, he would know something more about what Paul was talking about. And so he called a big meeting, and the Roman commanders were there. The Jews from the Sanhedrin were there, I'm sure. Portius Festus, his sister Bernice, was there. And so Paul has, in the first part of his address before King Herod Agrippa II, in the first 11 verses, he has basically told about how he was a bad, bad Christian. Well, he wasn't a Christian at all. He was a good, good Pharisee doing bad, bad things to Christians, persecuting them, putting them in prison when they were put to death, casting his vote against them. And then he'd received authority from the high priest. So he's trying to show, look, I'm, I'm no stranger to Judaism. I know it well. I had authority from the Sanhedrin at one time. And so he basically is trying to show in the first part of his defense before Agrippa that, hey, there's been a big, big change from my early life. I persecuted these people. Now I'm one of them. That ought to tell you something here at Agrippa II. I used to be a strict Pharisee, and now I'm preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. So now, in starting in verse 12, Paul is going to start to give his conversion experience, his testimony, if you will, to King Herod Agrippa II. Starting in verse 12, reading 12, 13, and 14, Paul is speaking. I was traveling to Damascus under these circumstances. What circumstances? The circumstances of enraging the Christians, of being enraged at the Christians and persecuting the Christians. That's from verse 11, which is how I ended up the last audio. So he's traveled to Damascus under these circumstances where he hated the Christians with authority and a commission from the chief priest. That means the chief priest backed up by the Sanhedrin, of course. The chief priest were the leaders of the Sanhedrin. King Agrippa, while on the road at midday, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining around me and those traveling with me. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice speaking to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, this is referring to Paul's famous conversion experience, which is related in the third person by Luke in chapter 9 of Acts. And now Paul is relating it from his viewpoint, the first person here before King Agrippa. He also relayed his conversion experience to the mob at Jerusalem in Acts chapter 22. Now, we see that this was at midday. This is omitted from the account in Acts 9.3, but it's included in Acts 22 before the Jerusalem mob. We see that this vision was at midday and the light was bright. And for the, you see a bright light at midday, that means that light must have been brighter than the sun. That was a tremendously bright light. In fact, Luke, Paul explicitly says here the light was brighter than the sun, shining around me and those traveling with me. Now at verse 14, Paul tells Agrippa and company that all of his companions fell to the ground. Now, Acts 9.4 in Luke's account of Paul's conversion 
Luke has Paul fell to the ground. Falling to the ground, he, Paul, heard a voice. In Acts 22, 7, before the Jerusalem mob, Paul says, and I fell to the ground. So there's no question that Paul fell to the ground. There is no contradiction with this verse here where it says in Acts 26:14, we all fell to the ground, not just Paul, but we all fell to the ground. However, there is a problem with Acts 9, 7, which says, Paul says, the men who were traveling, or Luke says, I should say, Luke says, the men who were traveling with him, with Paul, stood speechless. And so in Acts 9, 7, the men are standing, the companions, and in Acts 26, 14, Paul says, we all fell to the ground. So how do we reconcile this? And of course, if you're a liberal non-believer who's got to pick holes in the Bible, you'll say, hey, there's a contradiction. I'm not going to believe God. I'm going to go to hell proudly. Well, no. We uh, need to contradict it. Jameson, uh, excuse me, we need to harmonize it. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown say that the men at first stood speechless and then they fell to the ground. And this is the way you harmonize a lot of these apparent contradictions is you got to realize when somebody is observing something, he's observing it at a point in time. But a, a, an event usually transverses a long period of time with lots of different points at which you can observe. And so here we have the men standing speechless in Acts 9-7 at a point in time, and then later at a point in time when Paul's recalling it, he's recalling them after they stood speechless for an instant, stunned by the light, then they hit the ground. And then that's what Paul records in Acts 26-14. This is extremely easy to reconcile. Jameson Fawcett and Brown has another way to reconcile it. He says that the word, the, ver, the Greek word for stood means remained. The men who were traveling with him in Acts 9-7, the men who were traveling with him remained. The speechless men who were traveling with him remained. In other words, they didn't flee and run. I think that's what Jameson Fawcett and Brown means. I don't think that's the best way to reconcile it. I think the first way is the best way. They stood speechless, and then later on, they fell to the ground. Now, while we're talking about reconciling the different, the three different passages in Acts, talking about Paul's vision, his conversion experience, let's take up another one which is not related to Acts 26.14, but occurs in the other two accounts. In Acts 9.7, we read that Paul's companions heard Jesus' voice as Jesus was speaking to Paul. But Acts 22.9, when Paul is before the Jerusalem mob, I'll read from the KGV, and they that were with me, Paul's traveling companions, they that were with me, Paul, heard not the voice of him that spake to me. Well, there's a contradiction, right? Paul said, Luke says in Acts 9 that Paul's companions heard Jesus' voice, and then in Acts 22, 9a, they heard not the voice of Jesus. Well, if you'll look at all the other English translations, like the NIV, the ESV, the Homer Christian Study Bible, the NASB, they all have understand as instead of heard. They understood not. And they that were with me, this is for Acts 22, verse 9, and they that were with me, did not understand the voice of him that was speaking to me. Because the word hear can also mean hear and understand. I didn't hear you. Do you hear me, buddy? It means, do you understand me? Of course he hears you. I'm talking straight to you. And I say, do you hear me, buddy? It means, do you understand me? So that's easy to reconcile. I think the KGV translation is a little bit unfortunate because it creates a problem where there doesn't need to be one. We go to verse 15 in Acts 26, then I, Paul, said, he's still relating his vision to Agrippa and company, and then I said, Paul said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting, because you persecute the head, you persecute the body. 
You persecute the body, you persecute the head. And Paul was persecuting the body by throwing Christians in jail and voting for them to be subject to capital punishment. We go to verses 16 through 18 in Acts 26. Jesus continues speaking to Paul in that vision. But get up and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose. I, Jesus, have appeared to you, Paul, for this purpose, to appoint you, Paul, as a servant and a witness of what you have seen and of what I, Jesus, will reveal to you. I, Jesus, will rescue you from the people and from the Gentiles. The people there is from the Jews he's talking about and from the Gentiles. From the Jews and the Gentiles, I'll rescue you both. I will, I will now send you to them, to the Gentiles, well, actually to the Jews too, to the Jews and the Gentiles, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that by faith in me they may receive forgiveness of sins and a share among those who are sanctified. Now, Paul has a direct commission there to go not only to the Gentiles, but to the Jews also. And he says that God sends him so that he, Paul, will open their eyes. Now, of course, Paul is operating under Jesus' authority and command, so Jesus is the one that's really opening their eyes. And notice he doesn't say, I'm going to send you, Paul, there so that people, that you can convince people to open their heart and receive Jesus into their heart. The way we say it as modern-day evangelicals, you will not find that phrase in the Scriptures anywhere. We don't talk about people opening their hearts or excuse me, the scriptures does not, do not talk about people opening their heart and asking Jesus to receive and come into their heart. I mean, I, it, you know, I don't think it's a cardinal sin or something worthy of capital punishment to do that, but that's not the way they did it in the scriptures. And you notice here, it reminds me in Acts chapter 16 when it says God opened up Lydia's heart that she might believe, or the Lord did, opened up Lydia's heart so that she might believe. And here Paul, as Jesus' agent, is opening up eyes. That's because people are got their eyes closed, they're stupid, they're stubborn, and they're short, and I've talked to a lot of them, and you have too, and what you have to do is realize that until God opens their eyes, I don't care what good, how good a witness you give them, they're not going to believe. Paul had lots of people he witnessed to, and certainly he knew what he was doing, that they didn't believe him. In fact, a lot of times they got mad and threw him in jail or tried to stone him to death. Now, Paul says that Jesus told him, to go to the Jews and the Gentiles so that they would turn from darkness to light. Now, that figure there, darkness to light, was a figure that Paul liked to use a lot, according to the NIV Study Bible. For example, Romans 13:12, The night is nearly over, and the daylight is near. So let us discard the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Christianity is a battle of dark versus light. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, Paul says to the Corinthians, For God who said, Light let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. There's the contrast again, darkness versus light. Ephesians 5, 8 through 14. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light results in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, discerning what is pleasing to the Lord. Don't participate in the fruitless works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what is done by them in secret. Everything exposed everything exposed by the light is made clear. For what makes everything clear is light. Therefore it is said, Get up, sleeper, and rise up from the dead, and the Messiah will shine on you. Colossians 1.13 He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 5 for you are all sons of light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or the darkness. I, did, I never realized until I read all these verses together how much Paul emphasizes darkness versus light. 
he might have emphasized it so much is because Jesus originally told him that when in the vision which converted Paul. Now, when Jesus said in verse 16, get up and stand on your feet, Paul, what he's saying is, look, you're groveling on the ground, you're frightened, you're scared to death, you're blind. He says, stand on your feet, Paul. Take heart. You're going to be a minister, a minister to me. So don't lie down there on the dust, defeated. Get up, and I'm going to rehabilitate you, and you're going to make up for all the garbage you've done in the past persecuting me, and I'm going to make you my advocate instead of my persecutor. John Gill says Jesus is trying to cheer him up, cheer Paul up. Now, verse 16, Jesus says this to Paul, I have appeared to you for this purpose, to be a servant, to be my servant and a witness of what you've seen. A witness of what you have seen, of course, is a witness of that vision and of what I will reveal to you. In other words, Jesus is saying, this is not the first vision of me you're going to have. You're going to have some more. Now, let's look at some of the, Paul's later visions. He had a lot of them. Here's one he had in Corinth, Acts 18, 9 through 10. Then the Lord said to Paul in a night vision, Don't be afraid, but keep on speaking and don't be silent, for I am with you, and no one will lay a hand on you to hurt you, because I have many people in this city. That's Corinth. In Acts 22, Paul is speaking before the Jerusalem mob. He's referring to the time when he first came to Jerusalem after his conversion, being having been three years in Damascus in the Arabian Desert. And he says in verse 17 in Acts 22 through verse 21, After I came back to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple complex, I went into a visionary state and saw him telling me, Hurry and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. But I said, Lord, they know that in synagogue after synagogue I had those who believed in you imprisoned and beaten. And when the blood of your witness Stephen was being shed, I was standing by and approving, and I guarded the clothes of those who killed him. Then he said to me, go, because I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And so this is an example of how Paul had a vision when he was in trouble. He had come for that 15-day visit, first visit to Jerusalem from Damascus and Arabia. The Hellenistic Jews started persecuting him, and Jesus tells Paul in a vision, get out of Dodge, Paul. I got a lot of work for you to do. You are not going to get killed here. You're going to go to the Gentiles, so leave Jerusalem. And that illustrates a point about visions. They often come when people are in trouble. Acts 23:11. The following night the Lord stood by him and said, Have courage, for as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. That is when Paul was spending the night in the Antonia Fortress, having been rescued from the Jerusalem mob after the third journey by Claudius Lysus, the Roman commander. And, of course, he was in bad shape there. He was in danger of getting killed by the Jews or in, in the Roman commander. All, he had, all the Roman commander had to do, all Lysias had to do, was turn Paul loose to the Jewish mob, and Paul would be a dead man. So Jesus shows up again when his people are in trouble. That's when people tend to have visions. He says, come on, you're going to Rome. You're going to testify about me. Second Corinthians 12, 1 through 4, boasting is necessary. It is not profitable, but I will move on to visions and revelations of the Lord. Paul's a little bit bashful about talking about his revelations, but he had to, to shut down opposition at Corinth. I know, Paul continues, I know a man in Christ who was caught up into the third heaven 14 years ago. That was in the early 40s or so. Whether he was in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. I know that this man, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows, was caught up into paradise. He heard inexpressible words, which a man is not allowed to speak. Sounds a lot like those near-death experiences that you hear about so much. Galatians 1, 
12. For I did not receive it from a human source, and I was not taught it, but it came by revelation from Jesus Christ. Now there, I think Paul is referring to his revelation from Jesus Christ in Acts 9, when Jesus first appeared. But I had a friend of mine tell me that he thought that all of Paul's teaching about the law and all the stuff that was in the scriptures, he received it continuously over revelations while he was in the Arabian desert. I don't believe that. I just thought it was an interesting idea. I never heard that before. I forgot the context while that he was trying to prove a, a, a different point. I forgot what that point was, but I don't think so. But he had plenty of visions, whether he had visions there or not. He got a lot of his knowledge, of course, from just studying the scriptures. And again, you don't want to say, oh, everything depends on a vision or oh, everything depends on the scripture. Nothing wrong with having visions in the scripture as long as the scripture and the vision lines up. We go to verses 19 through 21 of Acts 26. Therefore, King Agrippa, Paul continues, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. What heavenly vision? The one he received in Acts 9 on the road to Damascus. And what was the command in the heavenly vision? Go preach to the Gentiles and to the Jews too. In the heavenly vision, Jesus said, I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and a witness of what you have seen of what I reveal to you. In other words, Jesus, uh, Paul, I want you to go out and tell everybody about this vision I'm giving you now and what I'm going to reveal to you in the future. And Paul did it. He was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. In verse 20, Paul goes on. Instead, I preached to those in Damascus first and to those in Jerusalem and in all the region of Judea. Instead of what? Instead of being disobedient to the heavenly vision. He went out and he preached, just like Jesus told him to do. Preached to those in Damascus first. Of course, he was saved on the road to Damascus. He stayed in Damascus and the Arabian Desert for three years. It's not clear whether which part of those three years he was in Damascus and which part of those three years he was in the Arabian Desert around Damascus. But he was three years there. Then he went to, to those in Jerusalem, he says. Next, he went down to Jerusalem. After three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days, he tells us in Galatians 1.18. And in all the region of Judea, he preached and to the Gentiles... And, of course, the Gentiles is referring to the missionary journeys he went on, that they should repent and turn to God. And do works worthy of repentance. Now, that phrase there, do works worthy of repentance, it could be interpreted and it could misinterpreted, and it could be made to say that you've got to do good works in order to get saved. The NIV is a little clearer here than the Holman Christian Study Bible. The NIV says that the Gentiles should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds, because the deeds are a follow-on to the repentance. The repentance is the root, and the deeds are the fruit. Verse 21, Paul says, For this reason, again, he's still talking to King Agrippa, Herod Agrippa II, For this reason the Jews seized me in the temple complex and were trying to kill me. This is the famous riot that was started in Acts chapter 21. Let's read Acts 21:27. As the seven days of purifi- as the seven days were about to end, thus the seven days of purification for the four takers of a vow that Paul is paying for the sacrifices for the ritual to end their vow. That's why he was in the temple, and that's why what got everybody all upset. And they all started screaming and hollering at Paul. As the seven days were about to end, the Jews from Asia saw him in the temple complex, stirred up the whole crowd, and seized him. These were Jews from Asia, probably from Ephesus who had previously opposed him during Paul's missionary journeys, and they followed him all the way from Asia and stirred up the crowd in Jerusalem. And this is what Paul's referring to. He's just giving a summary of what's gone on. And you notice he tells Agrippa, they were trying to kill me, which they were. There was a, 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 a plot by assassins, 40 assassins, 
who were planning to ambush Paul as he was coming before the Sanhedrin on his second appearance before the Sanhedrin. The first had ended in a riot. And uh, the scripture doesn't tell us that the Sanhedrin was involved in that, but yes, they were. Paul says it right here. I guess the scripture does say so right here, because Paul says it. They were trying to kill me. We go to verse 22 at Acts 26. To this very day, Paul continues, I have obtained help that comes from God, and I stand and testify to both small and great, saying nothing else than what the prophets and Moses said would take place. He's talking to the great now, the big shots in Caesarea. He doesn't mind testifying to big shots, he, and he talks to common people. He talked to anybody who would listen. And you notice he's appealing to prophet, the prophets and Moses. I've said nothing else than what the prophets and Moses said would take place. He's appealing to fulfilled prophecy. Notice that, notice that he is using the Old Testament scriptures. And as John Gill says, he mentions this to clear the charges against him because an appeal to Hebrew scriptures would be appropriate since he's witnessing to Herod Agrippa II, who's a Jew. Notice that Paul very confidently says, I stand and testify to both small and great. I'm holding my ground. I'm standing here. I'm not cowering, huddled up with chains on my arms in the corner of a jail cell somewhere. I'm standing here. Now, of course, he did have chains, but, but nonetheless, he was standing and testifying. Paul, notice that Paul also was not ashamed to say that he had attained help that comes from God. Anybody who was doing something great for God had better be very quick to acknowledge that all his help comes from God. Every good Christian knows that. He was about to go on trial for his life before Festus. Or actually, he had already been on trial. He's about to go on trial for his life for it when he gets to Rome. And so he acknowledges he needs help from God to escape from danger to preach the gospel. Now, when Paul says that he testifies to both small and great, of course, there were great people there in this auditorium assembled by Festus. There was the King Herod, his sister Bernice, there's Festus, there's the five military commanders there. But also, he, Paul had preached to Roman magistrates in Ephesus, Thessalonica, Philippi, and Corinth. If you go back and read those stories in the book of Acts. So yeah, he preached to the big shots as well as to the small fry. We go to verse 23 of Acts 26. I'm in the middle of a sentence, so let me go back in verse 22. Paul says, I was saying nothing else than what the prophets and Moses said would take place. 23. Verse 23, verse 22, what the prophets and Moses said would take place, 23, that the Messiah must suffer, and that as the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to our people and to the Gentiles. There Paul uses that metaphor, light, as light versus darkness, that they like to use a lot. He mentions that the Messiah must suffer. This, of course, would sound very strange to Jewish ears, because the Jews had an idea of a military Messiah, a conquering hero who came in who would come in riding on a white horse bringing about peace uh, civil peace political peace and no more subjugation to the romans but actually the idea of a suffering messiah is all through the old testament scriptures and remember paul is appealing to what the prophets and moses said would take place so he's appealing to the old testament scriptures how that the messiah must suffer well now where does it say that the messiah must suffer Genesis 3.15, and we'll give you some examples. Genesis 3.15, I, God, is God speaking to Satan at the time, I will put hostility between you, Satan, and the woman, Eve, and between your seed, Satan's seed, that's non-believers, and her seed, Eve's seed, that's believers, Eve, all the way down through Mary or Joseph into Jesus. And so Eve's seed is 
Christians and the devil seeds are non-believers and there's going to be hostility between us forever and ever and ever. And then God says in Genesis 3.15, he, referring to Jesus, will strike your head, the seed of, of Eve, Jesus, will strike your head. When you strike somebody's head, you kill them. And so Jesus will strike your Satan's head and you, Satan, will strike his heel. You strike somebody in the heel, you wound them, you inconvenience them, but you don't destroy them, you don't kill them. And that's what happened. Jesus totally destroyed the devil, and the devil just caused Jesus some inconvenience. Now, I do say that the passion of Christ on the cross, it's hard for me to state as an inconvenience. But compared to the overall cosmic view of things, the devil screwed up, and he lost, even though Jesus suffered terribly. All right, well, striking Jesus' heel doesn't sound like suffering, but let's read Psalm 22.1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from my deliverance and from my words of groaning? Well, there's an example of a suffering Messiah in the Old Testament. Daniel 9.26, the famous 70 weeks prophecy. After those 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. Of course, cut off usually in the Old Testament means to be killed. The Messiah will be cut off and will have nothing. That certainly doesn't sound like a triumphal Messiah, does it not? Isaiah 53.3, he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Does that sound like a conquering Messiah? Now, John Gill's got an interesting comment on this. How do the Jews deal with these suffering Messiah verses in their scripture when they all thought that the Messiah was going to be a victorious conquering hero? Here's a quote from John Gill, quote, to reconcile the 53rd of Isaiah, the 53rd chapter of Isaiah with their system, they, the Jewish rabbis, formed the childish notion of two messiahs, Messiah ben David, who should reign, conquer, and triumph, and Messiah ben Ephraim, who should suffer and be put to death, a distinction which has not the smallest foundation in the whole Bible, I should say. Talk about special pleading. Talk about sucking air. You lost the argument. And so even though Paul was speaking to Jews who might not like this idea of a suffering Messiah being in the Old Testament prophets, Paul proudly appealed to it. said, hey, the Messiah must suffer, and Jesus suffered. And then Paul continues in verse 23, Acts 26, and that is the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to our people and to the Gentiles. The first to rise from the dead, that's Jesus as the first fruits. 1 Corinthians 15:20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen fallen asleep. In other words, as Jesus rose, we Christians are going to rise also. Colossians 1:18. He is also the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he must come to have first place in everything. Now that firstborn from the dead could mean temporally he's the first that is risen, or it could mean he's the right. He's the one that has the right of the double inheritance. He's the one that has the right of inheritance. He might have come to first place in everything. It sounds like that's what it is. But either way, he's Christ is the first fruits. He's the first to rise from the dead. Now notice that this means to rise permanently, never to lie again, because there were other resuscitations where people rose but then died mortally like any other human being would. The NIV Study Bible and Clark give some examples. Elisha raised the son of the Shunammite woman, but that son died later. Elisha's bones raised a dead man, but we can presume that that dead man died later. Jesus raised the son of the widow of Nain, but we can presume that that son died later. Jesus raised Lazarus. I've already mentioned him. He died later, I'm sure. And then there were several others that John Gill mentions. So, now notice what Paul is saying here. He's saying that the Old Testament prophets, he's preaching, he is saying nothing else than what the prophets and Moses said would take place. What did the prophets and Moses say would take place? 
that Jesus would be the first to rise from the dead, which implies there's going to be some more for rising from the dead. So that means the prophets and the Moses, prophets and Moses predicted that there were going to up be other people who rose from the dead. So that means that in the Old Testament, the Old Testament saints had an idea of resurrection from the dead. Adam Clark points that out, and he says that's true despite what a lot of theologians say, that the Old Testament prophets didn't know about anything from the dead. Now, that's an interesting, that's a theological fine point. It's very interesting, because if you take that literally, that's what Paul is saying. The, Old, the prophets of Moses said this would take place in verse 22 of Acts 26, and then in verse 23, what would take place? That the Messiah must suffer, and that as the first to rise from the dead, which implies that there's going to be a second and a third dot, 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 in people rising from the dead. And so there you have the Old Testament knows something about resurrection of the dead. Now, I would like to take that up and go further into that and to find particular passages that prove that. I'm not theologically astute enough to do that yet, but it is an interesting idea, I should say. Now, notice that Jesus, the Old that Moses and the prophets, in verse 22, Paul is saying nothing else than what the prophets and Moses said would take place. And in verse 23, what would take place? That Jesus would proclaim light to our people and to the Gentiles. Well, where in Moses and the prophets, the Hebrew scriptures, where does it say that Jesus would be preaching to the Gentiles? Well, we could go to Isaiah 49, verse 6, and read this. He says, God says, It is not enough for you to be my servant, raising up the tribes of Jacob and restoring the protected ones of Israel, of course, my servant, that's, the, that's Jesus, the servant. It is not enough for you to be my servant, raising up the tribes of Israel and restoring the protected ones of Israel. I will also make you a light for the nations, that's the same thing as Gentiles, to be my salvation where? To the ends of the earth. Israel did not extend to the ends of the earth, folks, the Gentiles did. So even in the Old Testament prophets, we have indications that the gospel message will go out across the whole world and this particularistic idea of the Jews that salvation was only for the Jews is nonsense. It wasn't even in their own scriptures that the gospel was going to stay, was going to, was going to stay in Israel and not go to the Gentiles all across the world. Now, remember Paul, when he started that riot before the Jerusalem crowd in Acts chapter 21 and 22, it was when he got to the word Gentiles, they were listening to him very quietly as he was speaking in Aramaic to him. And then all of a sudden, when he gets to the word Gentiles, I'm going to preach to the Gentiles, the riot breaks out. The Jews just could not stand the thought of the gospel going to the nations, despite the fact that they knew their Hebrew scriptures, if they knew Isaiah, if they knew Isaiah 49, 6, they would see that the Hebrew scriptures predicted that the, suffer the servant would be a light to the nations, to the Gentiles, not just to the Jews, and that the and that salvation would go to the ends of the earth, not stay there in Judea. We go to verse 24 of Acts chapter 26. While Paul was saying this in his defense, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. Well, this shows that in some sense Paul had great learning. Now, Festus didn't know anything about the Jew Jewish scriptures, so it wouldn't take a lot to convince somebody that Paul had great learning. But as a matter of fact, he did have great learning. He was raised at the feet of Gamaliel. He was, he was learned in the scriptures. He quoted the Old Testament scriptures all the time, if you read his epistles. So yes, even though Festus didn't know how great Paul's learning actually was, he did pick up on the fact that Paul had great learning. Now what does this show? It shows that God can even use pinheads and nerds. Now I know sometimes that's hard to believe. 
But it really is true. Now, but you say to me, what about 2 Corinthians 2, verse 2? Verse 6. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 6. Paul says this to the Corinthians. We do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age. And if you read that whole passage there, Paul is knocking secular philosophy, such as the Athenians loved. And so, yeah, learning that is devoid, devoid of spiritual content is worthless, and it causes people to be arrogant. I mean, I, listen, I've been in the university system for years. Most of the people I dealt with were unsaved, and I guarantee you, except for the legal profession, per square foot in academia, there is more arrogance and pride than anywhere on this planet, except for the legal profession. So, but even though that's true, nonetheless, God used Paul's great learning. He used him a lot. I mean, he, could, he, he couldn't have written a lot of the scriptures. He quoted the scripture all the time, the Old Testament scriptures, because of his deep study. Now, there's a question as to how Paul Festus said this. Was he angry and resentful? John Gill says he could be angry and resentful because Paul had taken no, no notice of him, but was only talking to Herod Agrippa II. I don't think so. I think that Festus really was shocked that Paul would go around saying something about the resurrection of the dead. That sends, tends to send unbelievers into a funk. Remember now, Festus is hearing stuff he's never heard before. He's not familiar with the Old Testament Hebrew Scriptures, just like Herod Agrippa was. Paul had not really said, he, said anything that showed particular knowledge in his speech, that he was all that intelligent or well-learned, but, but Festus was approved. He was impressed. Jameson Fawcett Brown has a good quote to show what he was impressed by. The union of flowing Greek, deep acquaintance with the sacred writings of his nation, reference to a resurrection and other doctrines to a Roman utterly in, unintelligible, and above all, lofty religious earnestness, so strange to the cultivated, cold-hearted skeptics of that day, may account for this sudden explanation. And we might as well, might want to point out, too, Paul was not only learned in the Old Testament law and prophets and writings, he was also learned in Greek and Roman literature. I think there's four quotes in his letters to pagan writers. Cretans, a lazy beast was one of them. To an unknown god, that was another one. These were Roman writers. I forgot the name. Excuse me, Greek writers, whose names, unfortunately, I've forgotten. But that shows that Paul, he was a well-read person. He was not against preaching to intellectuals. He was just saying that intellectual. It's just like money. There's nothing wrong with having money, but if you use it for things that are divorced from God, it becomes an evil thing that will drag you down to perdition. Same thing with knowledge. Nothing wrong with knowledge. It's just how you use it. Now, Festus thought that Paul's great learning was driving him mad. I make the observation here that non-believers often think believers are crazy. John 10:20. Many of them were saying, he, referring to Jesus, he has a demon and is in as and is insane. Why do you listen to him? I think those were Pharisees speaking there. Said Jesus was crazy, insane. John 10, 20. Mark 3, 21. This is Jesus' own brothers, his own relatives saying this. When his own people, his relatives, heard of this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying, he has lost his senses. I've got a good quote here from Aristotle, quoted by John Gill, talking about intellects, nerds, the intelligentsia. Now, of course, Aristotle was no dumb guy, you know, but he was around smart people all the time. And this is what he said, quote, Men of great wit and learning and who are closely engaged in study 
whether in philosophy or politics or poetry or in technical affairs, are inclined to be melancholy and frenetic. Frenetic means excessively agitated, distraught with fear or other violent emotion, frantic with anger and frustration, frenzied, agitated, troubled emotionally. So that sounds like, that's Aristotle's definition of intellectuals. Well, it's not too flattering, is it not? So anyway, apparently Festus had the same sort of attitude toward intellectuals. That's why I said, Paul, your great learning is driving you crazy, bud. We go down to verses 25 and 26 of Acts chapter 26. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I utter, but I utter words of sober truth. For the king knows about these matters, and I speak to him also with confidence, since I am persuaded that none of these things escape his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. Paul addressed Festus very politely, most excellent Festus. This is not from fear. He was not cringing before Festus. It was not from flattery. It was just a customary thing. It's like you say, your honor to a judge, even though he's probably taking a bribe on the side and sleeping with his paralegals. Paul was very diplomatic, even in the face of hostility. Now, I don't, Jameson Fawcett Brown says that Festus probably, probably did not mean to hurt Paul's feelings when he said, are you out of your mind? Your great learning has driven you mad. And I think that's probably true. I don't think Paul needed to bite his tongue so much here. I don't think Festus was angry with him at all. He was just, he was just making a point. Wow. I don't understand this stuff. This stuff seems crazy to me. You notice how Paul says that all these gospel things have not been done in a corner. That's because the gospel is based on actual events, historical events, events lived out in historical times and places, as the NIV Study Bible says. For example, as John Gill says, the resurrection from the dead was a well-attested fact. If you, I've already done audios on the gospel accounts of the resurrection, and, and this has really impressed me. There are so many, there is no way the resurrection could not have happened. There is so much evidence, so much evidence and testimony by people who were there. And by people who could have contradicted the resurrection if they were able to. People who hated Jesus, like the Pharisees, they could not explain away the resurrection. So this is an extremely well-attested fact. And not only that, as John Gill points out, but the ministry of Paul to the Jews and the Gentiles, his gospel message was well-known too. It was all over the world. He was very famous amongst the rulers of the world back then because Christianity is spreading now. You know, it's spreading well, it hadn't spread to the point to where everybody knew what it was. I don't think the, the Romans knew what it was in the 60s. They couldn't distinguish it from Jews. But nonetheless, the, it, it's, it's spreading. And people in Jerusalem certainly knew what it was. And Festus certainly knew what Christianity was. And that's why Paul said he could speak with confidence. And that's why Paul said in verse 26, The king Agrippa, he knows about these matters. King Agrippa II was Jewish. And he knew about spiritual matters even, even, even if you don't. Most excellent Festus, Paul is implying. We go now to verse 27 of Acts chapter 26. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. Why did Paul know that King Agrippa believed the prophets? Because Herod Agrippa II was Jewish, and Jewish people are supposed to believe the prophets. Now, Paul asking that put Herod Agrippa II in a bad situation. Remember now, Herod Agrippa II is with a bunch of Jews. The Sanhedrin people are there that came up. I assume they, they, they were there. And so when Paul says, do you believe the prophets? He couldn't really say no, because the Jews present would be angry with him, as the NIV Study Bible says, because they believed that the prophets were, the, were speaking the very words of God. And 
It would not do to have their king saying, oh, we don't believe the prophets. So Paul was forcing Agrippa to say yes. And now, of course, as soon as he says yes, Paul was going to then say, well, then how can you deny what the prophets say? That there's going to be a Messiah. Then he was going to go into his apologetic showing how Jesus fulfilled those Old Testament prophets that Herod Agrippa II had to believe in. Now, of course, as soon as he did that, as soon as he said, well, you got a point. Jesus is fulfilling what the prophets say. And then what's, what's that going to do? That's going to make Herod Agrippa II look awful bad in front of the Jews. So he was sort of between the rock and the hard place. So he doesn't answer the question. He probably anticipate. He probably figured out where Paul was going with this, and he didn't want to get caught up in, in, a, in a bind. So in verse 28, he says this. Agrippa replies, replied to Paul, In a short time you will persuade me to become a Christian. Now, there is a difference of opinion on how Herod Agrippa spoke those words. There's two options. Either he spoke them literally or he spoke them rhetorically. If he spoke them literally, here's what he's saying. In a short time, Paul, you will persuade me to become a Christian. In other words, he's about to become a Christian. I'm almost converted. I'm almost convinced. But if you interpret those words as having been spoken rhetorically, you read it this way. Hey, Paul, in a short time, you're going to persuade me to become a Christian. And Christian be, could be a negative term. And he's saying, hey, you really think in a short time you're going to persuade me to become a member of that despised sect of Jewish heretics? There is another way you can translate the verse that makes it sound even more hostile and rhetorical. Make it a question, as the NIV Study Bible says. Do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Question mark. Do you really think, Paul, that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? So you see, reading it that way makes Herod Agrippa speak hostily. Now, which way is it? I don't know. And sometimes I think he's saving his face before his Jewish subjects, and he's trying to say, ah, you, I'm not going to believe in that nonsense. But then sometimes something in me says, ah, maybe he almost got saved. Well, we'll leave that up in the air as a mystery and go to verse 29 of Acts chapter 26. Paul continues, I wish before God, replied Paul, that whether easily or with difficulty, not only you, but all who listen to me might become as I am, except for these chains. Notice that whether easily or with difficulty, some people have a hard time coming to Jesus. They just do. I'm talking to somebody and I've been trying to witness to for, I guess, three, how many, three, four, five years? I can't remember. She was an ex-student of mine years ago in China and she's well, let's see, she's 25, so she would be, well, I guess that's about five or six years. That's a long time to be witnessing somebody. And I don't witness to her every time I talk to her uh, periodically, but uh, she's in China, and I'm in America. And so, conversation, how's your job going? You found a boyfriend yet? No, your parents giving you trouble because you're not married yet. Oh, your father hit you. Oh, your life's miserable. Oh, you don't like your job. And and so, I, I, I tell her about, about, you know, there's an answer to all your problems, and she starts saying, well, mm, and then she says, I can't tell you in, Ch in English. I have to get it in Chinese so I can really explain to you why I have trouble with this Christian stuff. And I said, okay, do it in Chinese. Get it translated in English. Next time I call you, tell me. I'm not going to give up on her. But I'm going to tell you, if she ever comes, it's going to be with difficulty, as Paul says. But some people just say, oh, yes, boom, they believe just like that. I don't know why. But anyway, Paul expresses what I think every Christian expresses. I wish that everybody who heard the gospel would come. It just drives me crazy that they don't. It's sad. 
you got friends, you got loved ones, you got people you really care about, and they just go living their life walking straight into hell, and they don't care. It's just hard. Now, Paul mentions that he wants everybody to be like he was, and then he says, except for these chains, he's not wishing any kind of temporal difficulty on his audience. This shows that Paul was still bound as a prisoner as he spoke. John Gill says that he probably, the chains were probably detached from the soldier's arm and wrapped around Paul's arms. Jameson Fawcett and Brown said he probably held up his two, two chained hands as he spoke. He says, except for these chains, and then held his hands up showing his chains to the audience as he spoke, which would be quite dramatic dramatic we go to verse 30 of acts 26 so the king the governor bernice and those sitting with them got up the governor of course is the procurator that's festus the king is here to grip of the second bernice is here to grip of the second sister or lover depending on if you want to believe those rumors or not and those sitting with them got up those sitting with them would be the five regimental commanders that were mentioned earlier as well as the leading citizens of caesarea who were also there also mentioned earlier, as John Gill mentions. Now, they got up. They probably got up very quickly. Here's a quote from Adam Clark. It appears they could bear the scene no longer. The king was overwhelmed and rose up instantly. Remember, Paul got him in a jam, and he could, do you believe the prophet's here to grip of the second? He, and he couldn't answer. The king was overwhelmed and rose up instantly, and so did the rest of the council, and went immediately aside. And after a very short conference among themselves, they unanimously pronounced him innocent. Well, now there's some evidence for you. Unanimously pronounced him innocent. Now, I don't, this is not the leading citizens of Caesarea and the Roman commanders. They were objective. The Jews, I'm sure, didn't pronounce him innocent. They might have even believed in Jesus. They might have got converted. You would hope so. But they certain, whether they got converted or not, they certainly did believe Paul was guilty of a crime. We read verse 31, and when they had left all the big shots, they talked with each other and said, this man is doing nothing that deserves death or chains. They, of course, are looking at it from a civil point of view. There's no riots. There's no sedition. There's no tumult. There's no insurrection. There's just theology, resurrection of the dead, fulfillment of the Old Testament prophets. This is a religious matter. This has nothing to do with the Roman government. He should have been let loose. And Agrippa said that in the next verse. He should have been let loose, and they acknowledge it, but Paul had appealed to Rome. We read verse 32, Then Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been released if he had not appealed to Caesar. And then when you read that at first, you think, Oh, what a shame. If he shouldn't have appealed to Caesar, we could have let him go. Well, Agrippa might have let him go. Again, the Jews had a lot of political power where they were, and Agrippa is ruling over Jews who tend to revolt and get upset. They might have let him go. And then as soon as he let go, the Sanhedrin would have assassinated him. Probably they already tried twice. So, no, this was a good decision that Paul made to go to Rome. It was a blessed event that he was getting out of Israel and going to Rome. So Agrippa is just looking at it from an evidentiary standpoint here. And he's not saying that Paul has to be released. He's just giving advice and counsel because Festus had the final say-so as the Roman governor and his judge, as John Gill points out. Now, Herod Agrippa's favorable opinion about Paul may have been very helpful to Paul. As Adam Clark says, it was very probable that when Agrippa returned to Rome, he represented Paul's case effectively, either to the emperor or to his ministers. Apparently, Agrippa went back to Rome later on. Paul was soon set at liberty in Rome, as Adam Clark says in Acts 28, verse 30. Then he, Paul, stayed two whole years in his own rented house, and he welcomed all who visited him. He rented a house. He wasn't in jail, obviously. This favorable opinion of 
Herod Agrippa II and Festus may have influenced Julius, who had Paul as a prisoner on the ship from Caesarea to Rome. Julius treated Paul very courteously, as Adam Clark says. Here's some scripture to show that, Acts 27.3. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and allowed him to go to his friends and receive their care. He let him loose. Hey, go see your pals. I'm not worried. Come on back. Acts 27.43. But the centurion kept them from carrying out their plan because he wanted to save Paul. Apparently they were getting ready to throw Paul overboard. So he ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first to get to land. It could be, as Adam Clark says, that Julius himself saw Paul. He might have been one of the soldiers at the hearing before Festus or before the auditorium meeting with Agrippa. Could be. But at any rate, he treated him nicely because, because the word was out. This man's innocent. He didn't do anything wrong. The Roman soldiers treated Paul very leniently, as Adam Clark says. We read in Acts 28:14. There at Puteoli, that's a, that's... Puteoli is a city that's on the north side of the Sea of Naples, about five miles west of Naples. I forgot its modern name. It's Puteozzi, so I can't pronounce the Italian, but it's, this is where they are in Acts 28:14. There we found believers, we, Luke and Paul, found believers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. Well, he's under arrest now. He's on his way for trial to Jerusalem, and the soldiers let Paul stay with his fellow Christians for a week. They were very lenient with him. Verse 16. When we entered Rome, Paul was permitted to stay by himself with a soldier who guarded him. He wasn't thrown in jail. They just put him up somewhere and had a, a soldier guarding him. Of course, Paul probably proved to the Roman soldiers he was from God because he saved their necks on that trip, as we'll see later on. The boat should have been, well, it was destroyed. They all should have been dead, but they, they all survived because of Paul. Ladies and gentlemen, I am now finished with Acts chapter 26. I hope you enjoyed this audio. Hope you stay tuned for the next one where we will start in Acts 27 and look at Paul's trip to Rome, the beginning of it. See you then.